Good morning. My name is Aiden. I am Good morning. My name is Aiden. I am one of the associate pastors on staff here, uh, associate pastor of outreach. Uh, pastor Aaron also sends his greetings. Uh, if, if you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Dan Min, our campus pastor, was up front here, and he was preaching because uh, Penn State was on spring break, so we had the privilege of hearing him here today. They did a bit of a, a pulpit swap. So today, Pastor Aaron is now at Penn State, so kind of back in his old stomping grounds with ACF uh, and privileged to just bless the students there uh, with a message. So uh, I'm like, am I your consolation prize? <laughs> no, no, no. So, um, but God has laid on my heart a message. We are continuing on the um, seven critical questions, and this is question number six. Uh, that we're going through today. And the question before us is, what are the greatest obstacles before us? What are the greatest obstacles before us? So today we're going to be focusing on this question. Uh, we'll be in uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20. So if you have a Bible with you or an app on your phone, you can turn there um, and check that out. But I, as I was preparing, I noted, you know, that anything worth doing often involves a challenge. It often involves obstacles that we must overcome. Even in the context of um, this sermon series, one of the first questions, there was a pair of questions that Pastor Aaron put before us. He says, what is our current reality and what is our desired future? And see, there's this gap between where we are right now and, and where we want to be. And in that gap, there must be some sort of obstacles because otherwise, wouldn't we just be there already? So today we kind of get to focus in on what is that middle spot, that gap of the obstacles that are before us? What are the, what are the challenges that are before us? Um, I was watching the news um, this past week, and amidst all of the stories uh, about Ukraine and war and Russia's continual advance, um, which continue to please lift up uh, Ukrainian people, there's actually an opportunity, I think it's in your bulletin as well, that the uh, Salvation Baptist Church is collecting goods for them, so a little plug for that. Uh, if you're not familiar, what's Salvation Baptist Church? Actually, it was the Russian Baptist Church. They didn't change their name because of the conflict or anything like that. They, they was all, uh, happened maybe a year or two ago, but they actually, their pastor is Ukrainian, and um, so he has connections with a local church in Ukraine. They're filling a shipping container. They're going to send people with the container. That's the plan. So um, to get it, make sure it arrives at that church in Ukraine for the local church to distribute the goods. So if you want like a real tangible way, there's a list of things on our Facebook page uh, that they're collecting. Um, so my point was not to talk about that, but if that's moving in your heart, what else can we do? That is something. Let's continue to pray for them. But in the midst of these stories about Ukraine, there was one about self-driving trucks, like, our, like, like, you know, like big tractor-trailer trucks. And I'm like, what? What? And there's a video of a guy whose hands are not on the wheel, and they had all these senses around them, and, and they were literally able to see every obstacle in its path. And they could see, well, that's a, I don't know how the computer worked to recognize, like, that's a person, that's a car, I can't go, I can't go, but there were these self-driving trucks. And I remember, it's like, oh, a couple years ago, I heard about Google, and that they had these self-driving cars that were going to come about. And I started wondering, you know, what's taking it so long? And, and, then, and then I realized, oh, they just must have run into some obstacles. It's a joke. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I'll be here for the next 30 minutes, right? <laughs> and then I'll be running, right? 
Um, yeah, no, that's, yeah. So, right, no matter what, you know, that company, they're trying to put these trucks, there are obstacles that they have to get through in doing that. I even think about my own life. You know, what was, before I met my wife, Emily, what was my current reality? Sad, lonely, awful, no. <laughs> what was my desired future? Well, I'd, I had dreams and hopes to be married. And so um, I met, we, we were both, I may have told this story before, forgive me, but we were both high school teachers, uh, high school music teachers in local districts here, um, Bald Eagle, and I was at West Branch, and we both happened to bring students to the same district choir festival, which was actually hosted here uh, in State College High. So our love story began in State College. Uh, so um, we were there, and uh, for, for the... Um, Activity. There's a Friday night activity for the students. State, State High had a student-run jazz band, and they, they put on a jazz or a swing dance for all of the students at the festival. And so uh, we were hanging out with a group of other young teachers at the swing dance, and I, you know, I was like, okay. It's like I actually had. I'm not great, but I had taken some swing dance lessons in college. And so I look over to Emily and I said, Hey, do you know how to swing dance? And uh, she said, Yeah, I do. I was like, Well, me too. Like, do you want to dance? And she's like, well, sure. Um, and then can you believe, like, after we got back home again, how the students were talking, like, oh, Mr. Wirtz, you were dancing with another teacher? And I'm like, come on, guys, it's just a dance, right? I mean, I, I only married her later, right? Um, but so when I got home, I was like, okay, kind of, that was fun. Like, I think I'd like to get to know her better. And I look through the packet of information, and I see I have a roster of all of the teachers um, with their, 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 their email address and their phone number. And I was like, oh, this could be my opportunity, right? But then as soon as I start punching in her cell phone number, um, and I'm about to hit send, and this was the age of like, okay, it was my cell phone, right? Okay, I had a cell phone, but it was like the flip phone. I have the number in there, and I'm like, I'm going to just close the phone. And I'm like, okay, but there's this, this like, my heart starts beating fast, right? I love, right? No, this fear is what this is. Um, and the pit of my stomach of, like, starts to get a knot in it. And then, and then I finally get the courage. I'm like, okay, da -da -da -da. I hit send. It starts ringing before I know it, and I'm kind of nervous on the phone. I'm like, hi, is this Emily? She says, yeah, who is this? I said, this is Aiden. And now at this point, this is where how we retell the story, it goes in two very different directions, right? <laughs> she says... She's like, I didn't talk that way to you. I was like, well, this is what I heard. So I say, hi, this is, this is Aiden. And she says, how'd you get this number? <laughs> I'm like, oh, she, she's here. She's like, I did not. But I, I, maybe not in that tone, but that's, that's kind of what I felt, right? Um, and I'm like, whoa, okay, if I got through this one obstacle of my fear, then I'm like, I think I hit another obstacle. And I start like backpedaling. I'm like, oh, it was, it, it was in the handout. And I just wanted to call and say I had a good time swing dancing with you. And at that point, I've lost all confidence in myself. And I was like, oh, so, you know, if you want to go swing dancing sometime again, just give me a call. And um, later on, she tells me, like, she's on the other end thinking, like, yeah, buddy, if you ever want to go swing dancing again, you can give me a call. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that's how our relationship started. Um, yeah, fast forward, a couple other things happened. We get married, blah, 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 all that. So, <laughs> story ends. Um, right. So, but it got me thinking that even in that, like, how often are the obstacles that we face, it, it, it was actually more so the, the condition of my heart that was getting in the way. I had the number. I just had to hit the send button, and I, I just, I couldn't do it. Or, or when I hear she's like, the, the response that I feel is somewhat threatening, like, how'd you get this number? I'm like, then in my heart, something just like, <gasps> okay, I did the wrong thing. Uh-oh. 
And so I wonder today, as we look at 2 Chronicles 20, if we can kind of look at these greatest obstacles that are before us, and instead of turning an eye outward to the world or to other people or to circumstances, I wonder if God might have something he wants to say to us about the condition of our own heart and the obstacles that are before us there that he is fighting for us and wants us to overcome. So, Second Chronicles 20. <clears throat> so here is a little bit of cultural context of where we are in Scripture, um, so we can kind of figure out where this fits in the whole of everything. So Chronicles kind of goes, if you look at the beginning, it's a genealogy from Adam, like the very beginning, and then it goes through. Um, First Chronicles is a lot about King David and the reign over Israel, right? The unified kingdom of Israel, God's chosen, his holy land, and how, how, how David uh, set up that kingdom and how he ruled and reigned there. And then it transitions into his son uh, Solomon, right? Solomon who asked for wisdom to rule well, and God granted it to him, and, and, and even like Proverbs are attributed to Solomon as the, the, the wisest man on earth, right? And then we get to after Solomon, so the kingdom of Israel, it, it, it fractures into two parts, right? There's a, what's called the northern kingdom, and this is where it gets confusing because it's actually called the kingdom of Israel, but it's not the whole kingdom. It's just from like just north of Jerusalem up is the kingdom of Israel. They, they fractured away and had a separate king, and uh, their king eventually was in Samaria, which is where their king ruled from. And then in Jerusalem, there was a separate king for the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. So when we hear of Judah, that's the kingdom. And um, Je- we have Jehoshaphat, uh, who, is, who is, he's actually the fourth king of this kingdom in the southern kingdom. And we, we look at it, if you look at even the last couple chapters before chapter 20, again, context of what's going on here, Jehoshaphat, he was one of the better kings, that there were often kings of, of Judah that they, they didn't follow God's way, and it's particularly Israel. They didn't, they didn't follow, they, they worshiped other idols. But Jehoshaphat comes on the scene and he says, look, I'm going to tear down these idols. I'm going to tear down the, the high places of worship to, to, to like pagan gods, and we're going to reunite and worship the one true God. So like, okay, thumbs up, Jehoshaphat. You got some good things going your way. But just like anybody else, he's not perfect. And so even in, in the um, in one of the chapters right before here, maybe it's chapter 17, um, where that the, the northern kingdom of Israel, they say, hey, Jehoshaphat, why don't you come and help us fight this war against this other, this other kingdom that's coming against us? And he actually gives him, like, slaughters all these sheep and cattle and throws a big party, and, and that, like, convinces Jehoshaphat. It's like, hey, maybe I should, I could, like, get something out of this for myself. And he doesn't consult the Lord. So he's a mix, just like anybody else. Some good, some bad ends up that uh, the other king of the northern kingdom of Israel, he gets hit by an arrow. He ends up dying that day. Jehoshaphat is protected by the Lord, but he has to retreat and come back home. So here we find him kind of like licking his wounds from, from defeat. And then here we have this story in Second Chronicles 20. Because it says, after this. Well, after what? Well, after all of that. What happens next? It says this, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. So he's back in his kingdom, and all three of these tribes, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they, they joined together. They were actually, well, I won't tell you the whole history there, but they uh, somewhat related to Israel through, maybe I am telling you the whole thing, <laughs> Abraham's nephew Lot, 
shady story there. What happens with Lot? You can look it up and read it, but his two daughters have a son, have, have sons from Lot. One of them's named Moab. The other one is named Ben-Ami. We get the Moabites and the Ammonites, right? And then suddenly they're coming and attacking, but they band together with another, another uh, you know, tribal kingdom to come against him. And how does Jehoshaphat respond when there's this external threat coming against his kingdom, something larger than what he can handle? And the very next words I see are actually after verse 2. So read verse 2. It says, Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, like the Dead Sea, and, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, and Gedi, which is like a couple days' journey, like right outside of their coming into their kingdom, right? And then what happens? How does Jehoshaphat respond? Verse 3, it says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. And isn't this like, I don't know about you, but me, in times of conflict, and there's something that's coming against me, you know, what, what does my heart do? What are, in, in times of conflict, our hearts tend to respond in fear and anxiety, right? Fear and anxiety. And how much of that I think we see in the world today based on like conflicts and things around us and what's going on. Uh, for me personally, I think that this, some of this I think, um, you, you know, from my family of origin of, uh, you know, when I grew up, we were a very, um, you know, we, we, we didn't yell in our house. There wasn't like a lot of conflict it seemingly in our house, so it, um, sometimes passive about things, maybe, uh, and so anytime when I'm in a situation where there's tension, I'm just like, uh-oh, I'm just not, I'm just not used to this. Another, another story, like when Emily and I were first uh, married, and we were visiting down at um, my sister's house for the holidays, and um, she smiles because she knows what story I'm telling. Uh, that uh, we were just having a discussion, as she would say, about our, tra- I think it was maybe our travel plans or about something. And so she comes from a, the other end of the spectrum with her family. Like if they had something to say, they would say it. And they would, uh, their, their volume level was louder than what my volume level was. And so she's there, we're having a conversation. And then she's like, well, I think they raised her voice a little bit. Um, in my family, that was synonymous with yelling, but in her family, it was, this was not yelling. And then my sister was in the room, and she's just like, <gasps> and then she's just like, <laughs> walks out of the room. And then she comes back, and she says to us later, she says, <gasps> that was just so tense. I couldn't handle it. I just had to leave the room. So, and Emily was like, I wasn't even, that was nothing. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, so, like, from your family of origin, like, some of this determines how you view conflict and what, how it affects your heart. So you may come from someplace completely different than me, right? But, but um, my natural reaction in terms of conflict, you think of like, okay, what are the natural things? There's either a fight or a flight. I'm a flight kind of guy, right? Uh, first time that I realized, we've got lots of stories today. First time that I realized like, oh, there's a threat coming against me, and I don't know that how or what to do with this. Uh, we moved when I was in fifth grade and I started an elementary school um, at, at a new school in fifth grade, and it was a K through six school. So there were sixth graders that were older than us, and um, there was there's you know there's always that kid. It was a small school, so everybody knew everybody. Um, well, I didn't because I was new, but you learn pretty fast like who the kids are that are like, whoa, you just want to stay away from that guy because you know he's bigger than everybody else. Maybe lives in the rough part of town, and and in this case, his name was Russell. <laughs> Russell. And so, Russell, I, I, I swear, I, 
I don't know if this is true or not, but I have this memory where he has like this scar on the side of his face. And, and it's just like, you just avoided him as best you could, and you tried to like keep your distance, and like, and you didn't get hurt, right? Um, but one day, leaving school, I must have been like walking backwards, talking to a friend, and I run into Russell, and I'm like, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, and he's like, what you, in, in my mind, this is how I remember, he's like, what, do you got a problem with me? And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> so I see him start to go this way, and there are two different paths you could take to get down from the elementary school. So he goes that way, so I'm going this way, and then I get to the bottom of the hill, but I forget that these two paths come together again, and I'm talking to my friend that I'm walking home with. His name is Jason. I was like, oh my gosh, Jason, do you see what happened? I think, like, Russell's out for me. And, like, right about that point where I say, like, Russell's got it out for me, who's standing, like, right behind me? It's Russell. <laughs> and he's like, hey, you're that kid that ran into me. I don't even remember the whole the conversation, but all I remember is that feeling, you know, that, that my heart starts thumping again, right? My stomach gets all into knots. I don't know why I did this, but, but I remember specifically that I, I must have, like, in my, in my fear, clenched my hands and fists, and Russell sees that, and he's like, oh, what, you want to fight? <laughs> I was like, ah, uh, no, and uh, so what happens, you know, there's a crossing guard there for elementary students, so the crossing guard comes, and um, he does has no idea what's going on, and he's going downtown, and I'm going up the hill, so I just, like, book it across the street, and, like, that's my flight away, so this is, this is me, right? I, I, I tend to run, right? My response in fear is to run, you know, and, I, and I, I see in, you know, even just a quick Google search or whatever of, like, rising anxiety in our culture. And then there's articles from pre-pandemic that say, oh, anxiety's on the rise. And then the pandemic hit. And now we hear about, you know, whether it's college students or high school students or just anybody, there's this sense of anxiety about how do we re-engage you know, with the world, how, how does it look like, you know, and there's just this sort of this under ugh, of, of anxiety, and, and I feel like the news doesn't help when we see all sorts of conflict and horrible things in the world, I feel like politicians don't help who would want to use our fear to solidify us into their category and say, well, you got to be with me because we're afraid of them and afraid of that, and we're all this finger pointing about, you know, all the terrible things in the world that are going wrong. So we don't need an army to come against us, like what was happening with Jehoshaphat. There's all sorts of threats to us. And uh, I, I've been reading a book by a man named Sky Jatani. I, I find, when I find an author that I like, I'll just keep like, finding another book and finding another book and read them. And this is, this is the, my latest guy, Sky Jatani, that I've been reading a bunch of uh, the book with. And, and there's a quote from there uh, that I want to read f for you. I'll be on the screen here, and it says this. It says, fear and control are the basis for all human, and I want to add in there, man-made religion, which I think is really what he's getting at, like religion that we try and create on our own, right? Fear and control are the basis for that, that we live in a very dangerous world marked by chaos, ugliness, and scarcity, as we come to recognize the dangers around us, we, f we feel afraid, and in turn, we try to mitigate our fear by seeking control. We believe that through control, we can protect ourselves from danger and therefore reduce our fears. You know, and then he goes on in the book, uh, this book called With, uh, to, to show like, all these different ways that people use religion 
And it's like, okay, if I can just say the right prayers or, or, or pray the right way or, ha- you know, uh, live by the right principles, then, then that God has to bless me. And so it's like this twisted backwards approach of like what I do is going to force God's hand to somehow bring about my desired result. And he's like, no, this is all completely backwards. It's about, the book's called with. No, it's a life with God is what God wants. With us. And so in, in this, this fear and control, I see um, these are just, these are, these are, you know, this flight and fight are just these both fear-based um, responses. You know, if I'm going to fight it, I am going to control the situation to the best of my ability. I am going to create the outcome that I want. Or I'm going to flight. I'm going to run out of here. Uh, I, I'm just going to fall into my fear and run. And so um, we see that these things, on both of these things, that, that what's happening is that we are focusing on the wrong things. And so this would be like the next obstacle that I see. We're focusing on the wrong things. Like in my control, I'm focusing on the, on the aggressor that's out there. In my, in my flight, in my fear, I'm focusing on myself. Right? So um, let's read the next verse. And, well, it's actually the end of verse 3. We haven't even got through the end of verse 3. So what does it say about then Jehoshaphat was afraid, but what did he do? It says, and he set his face to seek the Lord. So we talk about focusing on the wrong things, and that wrong focus is on ourself or on the, on, the, on the threat, but instead he set his focus on the Lord, right? And so what does he do? What does he do? Um, not that this is prescriptive, that we have to follow exactly every single thing that Jehoshaphat did, but let's, let's read through what he does, because like the primary thing he does here is that he goes to God in prayer and in fasting. So what do they do? Um, end of verse 3, it says that he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. Uh, from all their cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And what do I see? He does that. He didn't do this alone, right? He called together all the people. How much in our, in our own American culture, like, I can do this on my own type of thing? Do we try and take care of things on our own? And I feel like in that isolation, that's just what breeds more anxiety in isolation. And instead, he's like, no, we need to gather together. All right, let's togetherness. All right. Next thing he does, he stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. I'm going to pause there. Like, what is he doing? Like, when, anytime I hear someone, like, speaking to God, asking God questions, you know, like, oh, Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? I mean, is he really asking God? Does God really not know? He's like, well, let me think. Am I God in heaven? No, I'm wondering if maybe he is more speaking to himself reminding himself of God's goodness, that God is in heaven, right? 
if he's repositioning himself in this larger narrative of, of what God has done and bringing them there and saying, God, reminding me, you know, God, what have you done so far? What is it that you did to get us here? Like, you're, you're, you're not going to just leave us and drop us here for, for, for dead at this point, are you? And again, like, just repositioning himself in that bigger story of what God is doing. And then he puts the situation before God, and then he makes his request. Like Scripture says, let our requests be known before God. He does that right there. He says, and now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. And here's his request. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? And then I see in the midst of this just this humility and honesty to himself about his situation because he says this. He says, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And there you see it. There's this focus. You know, this focus can be a barrier if it's on ourselves or on the others, but this focus can also be just the, the, the doorway into what God has for us. Like, what is next? Well, we don't know, but we focus on you. So, when facing what feels like a threat, start to feel that fear and anxiety, that, that, that barrier within us that starts to, like, maybe freeze, or we're going to fight, or we're going to flight, but then what is he saying? Well, stop. Set our face to seek the Lord. Set your eyes on the Lord. And then, continuing on with the story, what happens next? What's God going to do? He says this, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said this, he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And he says it again. O Judah and Jerusalem, he says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And I have to pause there. Like this sounds like this is such great news. But then until I put myself in the story, which I kind of like to do sometimes, of like think like, how would I respond if I were in that situation? You know, if I were Jehoshaphat, you know, um, I'm sure he was a much better leader and ruler and king than I would ever be. But if I were Jehoshaphat, like, would I believe it? 
when the prophet came and said, hey, God's going to deliver you. You, you, know, you don't need to fight. God will fight on your behalf. Like, what happens in my heart? And if I'm really honest with myself, I start to wonder, you know, if my focus is not on the Lord, if, if my focus is on myself, or if my focus is on the world, when we shift our focus off of Christ, what can happen? We can begin to lose faith. And I think this is like the third barrier I see in here. Is like in this moment, there's a moment of decision. Am I going to believe what God says? Am I going to believe what this prophet says about what God said? And if I'm honest with myself, I'm like, gosh, that's a hard position to be in because as that leader, the next day, I'm going to either be leading hundreds of people either to a victory or to their death. That feels like a weight. And I wonder if anyone's ever been there in the middle of a crisis, something happening in your life, and then the, the good seeming, you know, the good, the, the good Christian word that comes to you from a friend that, that says, you know, like Jehaziel says, he says, they say to you, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed. God will fight for you. And then what's the thing that happens, the doubt in my mind that I hear that is not from God that says, yeah, right. we do with that? Because I'm guessing if any of you are like me, you've had those moments of doubt and uncertainty. For me, um, before moving here, uh, we were at a church in Williamsport called City Alliance Church, and uh, one of those moments for me was when I heard from the leadership of the church that said, hey, all right, Aiden, we're going to be moving in a new direction, and it's not with you. I'm like, okay, what does this mean? Like, this is my job. Am I out of a job? Uh, I'm like, okay, what's all these questions? Like, how am I going to take care of my family? Oh, my wife's pregnant. Am I going to have health insurance? Like, what's going to happen? All of these fears that just start, like, piling up. And I start to wonder, you know, like, what, God, like, what are you doing here? Several months later, um, as I was, I don't know how many months later, after, well, maybe a year later, when I was being interviewed for this position uh, here, when I was sharing about, you know, part of our story, and uh, with the pastoral staff, they asked the question, I said, well, so what did you learn about yourself through all of this? And my response at that time was like, well, I feel like I've learned, like, the true essence of, like, what my faith is. And it's maybe a lot less than what I thought it was. It's almost like I felt like when I was there that I had this really strong, solid faith, like this, this almost like the spiritual gift of faith that is very strong. We see God moving and the, the church growing and all of these amazing things happen. But what, what happens whenever some sort of trial comes or a hardship comes, it's almost like that faith was actually a balloon that was completely empty on the inside. And when something hard comes, it's like that was the pin that just popped it, and I'm left with these like little fragments of a balloon that are just completely worthless. And when I think is like, you know, we cannot create faith on our own. It's not like someone could just, can, can I say to, to me like, okay, I just, I just gotta have faith. 
I just got to believe. I just got to like find some inner strength that I can just like muster myself to like do this. Because as soon as we say like, okay, you just got to like make the faith happen inside of you, or it's like you just got to push through or whatever, then I'm like, wait a second. Are we turning faith into some sort of work that I now do? When Paul says, as by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, this is a gift from God, both the grace and the, the faith to believe. This is not the way. So I wonder to hear about Jehoshaphat when he's in the weight of that moment, I don't know what was going on in his heart, if there was any hint of doubt. There might not have been. He might have been like, I heard this word, I'm solid. But if he's anything like me, there was this moment of like hesitation and fear of like, am I going to believe this or not? So what do I do? I think it doesn't matter which camp you fall in because I think the response is the same of what we see that he did. And we see this in verse 18. It says this. It says, then... Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. All that he could do in that moment when he receives this prophetic word from the Lord that God's going to fight for him, it puts him face down on the altar before God, just like, can't even handle it. Like, okay, God, I am just, whether, whether I believe you or whether I don't, and I think sometimes this is what we need to do, is that when our hearts don't have the faith to, to necessarily understand or believe what God is doing, what, what, what is our only choice but to do what he does and come before him, to surrender to God, which is what I see him doing in that moment, is he is completely surrendering himself to the Lord. And he says, all across that room, all the people who were gathered together, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Like this was his act of worship, was surrender. When, our, when, our, when we can't change our hearts, but what we can control is our bodies. And something in that, that movement and that motion of coming before him and surrendering to him that God starts to do this work in our hearts. And then, so then there, there's, there's all of, they said all of Judah, but then there's another group in there, the next verse, which I find like, okay, so some of us might be like that, but then some of us might be like the Levites, which are in the next verse. So you can kind of see these two contrasting responses, like Jehoshaphat is on his face before the Lord, like, oh my gosh, like responding in surrender. And then the Levites, which the Levites, they were the tribe that was set to take over the, the temple. They were like the worshipers. They were the, the priests of the temple that took care of it. And they, in their worshiping, like, that's what they do. They're like, hey, so they, they stand up. It says the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And sometimes, like, that's us, and we need those people in our lives to be the ones that are like, yes, God is going to do this. Let's praise him together, even when our hearts don't feel like it. We need you if that's you. For your faith to carry others when their faith is just falling apart. So, I don't know if you've been in that position. I'm just not sure what your faith is. I just want to say that God's not scared by that. He's not angered by that or by our lack of faith, but I feel like he is very tender towards that. 
And as we set our focus on him and surrender ourselves to him in the midst of even fear and doubt, that's where he comes in and enters and starts to do this work of faith. So back to this book by Sky Jatani called With. Uh, he shares a story there um, about Henry Nowen. When Henry Nowen was traveling, um, he, he saw a trapeze artists at a circus, and it hits him while he's sitting in the, in the audience, Henry, Henry Nowen, um, that, that what he sees in this circus of these trapeze artists is a picture of the Christian faith. And, and, it, and it's this beautiful thing. So this is, this is how Sky Jatani relates it, and then I'll have the quote from Henry Nowen on the, on the screen. It says this, so Sky writes, the flyer is not the star of the trapeze performance. The maneuvers are only possible because he trusts that he will be caught. He says, everything depends on the catcher. This led Nowen to a new understanding of his Christian life. And this is the quote that Henry Nowen said. It says this. He said, I can only fly freely when I know there is a catcher to catch me. If we're going to take risks to be free in the air and in life, we have to know there is a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible trust the catcher. And then Sky Jatani goes on and says, faith, then, is the opposite of seeking control. It is surrendering control. It just, it enhances the truth that control is actually an illusion. We never had it, and we never will. We overcome fear by surrendering control, but surrender is only possible if we have total assurance that we are safe. We must be convinced that if we let go, we will be caught. This assurance only comes when we trust that our Heavenly Father desires to be with us and will not let us fall. So in verse 19, I see that like there's a community that will believe for us in those times when we don't. And let's see what happens next here in verse 20. Like, what does he do? What did Jehoshaphat do? He says, And they rose early in the morning, and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm wondering if he's looking around at the men and he's going to give this, you know, this is the speech before the battle, right? And he still sees men who are kind of afraid or people that are like, oh, I heard this word yesterday. How are you going to feel about it? And something has been solidified through his surrender. And he's like, okay, now let me encourage you. Here's what he says. He says, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Sometimes it's amazing what can happen overnight surrenders to God. God moves in his heart, whether or not, I don't know if he was there or not, but, but at this point, he is solid in his faith in what God is going to do. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. He's saying, trust the catcher. He will catch us. And then, I love this part next. He says, and when he had taken counsel with the people, so he says, okay, imagine this. Okay, okay. Jehoshaphat, I'm, if I was the king, he's like, okay, guys, we gotta make our battle plan. Now, here's the moment of, like, what are we going to do? Are we going to send out the warriors first or, like, consulting his people? And, and then what do they do? After consulting the people, they say, this is decision that they make. Taking counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast loves 
His steadfast love endures forever. So you imagine this. Like, he sends the worship team out front. All right? And then the army's there. If you, if you were the approaching army that were coming up the valley and like, hey, guys, like, here comes the, 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 the Jehoshaphat and all of Judah. They got instruments. Like, where's their spears and, like, the chariots and, like, their fight? And they're, like, they're probably like, we got this. It looks like surrender. But what the army didn't know is that they were not surrendering to them. The night before, they had already surrendered to God. And so what happens? It says, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. And I don't know why God does this, but it strikes me of like, when they began to sing and praise. It, could God not have like stopped them in, 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 at En Gedi when they were like still miles away? Well, yeah, he could have. Could God not have like, okay, we showed up, God, here we are, and they're still coming. Could God not have moved in that moment? Well, he could have, but there's something that God moves in our worship and our praise. This is the battle, that God cares more about our hearts, and he sees their hearts responding in faith and in trust and taking a step of like, okay, I don't have a weapon, but I'm put here to sing, so I am going to sing my praises to God. And God moves. So, the battle belongs to the Lord. It says, for the men, this is verse 23, for the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the, of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground that none had escaped. And to wrap up in conclusion, like, is this not the gospel of what we see here? That God goes before us, that there are things in our lives, that, that there is sin in our lives, or brokenness in our lives, or just the consequences of the broken, the world, that, that, that things happen and that we, we do not have the power to fix it, but this is why Jesus came to take on himself, to fight the battles that we could not fight, to die the death that we deserved. Like, those guys worshiping out front, they deserved to die like, if, if this was, like, normal life, they would have died. But God's like, no, it's not going to happen. We've been separated from God, and the world is broken. We can't fix it, but he comes, Jesus comes, defeats sin in our place. Our salvation doesn't come because we fight for it. It comes because we surrender to God. And this is the essence of faith the thing required, like it's that non-action, right? Because it's not, it's not by, our, by our works, but that faith is that non-action of belief and trust. We surrender, we worship, he draws near. And then if you can read the rest of the story of what happens, but what, that, that war zone, that battlefield, 
they rename that and they, they call it the Valley of Barakah, which Barakah is Hebrew for blessing. It's the Valley of Blessing. And that, you know, I don't know, you know, you say, okay, Aiden, are you telling me that I pray to God and he's just going to fight all my battles in the way that I want to see them won? I'm like, I don't know what God's will is. But I do know that he wants to take the places of brokenness within us and heal them so that may become, they may become this valleys of blessing. So even that story I shared earlier about, like, not working at City Alliance and like we're not going forward, and like that was my whole like my whole vision was it was like here's here's where we're gonna be, and here's where we're gonna live for the rest of our lives, and this church we're gonna be ministering, and and then like for God to like now be on the other side of it, and be like oh gosh, you know what? I did not have the perspective to see how God was gonna move, and how even like coming here, or or just the the, the again the valley of blessing that has come from me surrendering to Him and releasing my perspective see that maybe God has something different. And so it's a surrender and often a sacrifice. So I don't know where you are today. You know, some of us may be in that position of Jehoshaphat, that the threat is approaching. There are these barriers that start coming up, or maybe a barrier of fear or a barrier of, of focus of what we're looking at, and it's just inhibiting our faith. And maybe the action is just to surrender and whatever that looks like to you. Whether that's like Jehoshaphat coming and falling on your face here before him as, as a physical act, even if like, I'm not sure I believe what God's going to do or know that he's going to pull through in this, but I'm just going to, in my body, I just need to, I'm just going to surrender. And the Lord looks on that with in favor and says, that he's for you. Maybe some of us are in the position of the Levites that we hear the word of the Lord and we're like, we rejoice and praise. And so in this response time, we can lift our voices and sing to him for the victories that he has declared that we have not yet seen and praise him in that tension of like, God's, God's got a victory. You know what? I could respond in fear, but I'm not gonna respond in fear because I believe. And you stand with the Levites and you praise him as you wait for the victory that you have not yet received. And even if your faith doesn't feel strong, you know, what does it look like to take that one step? Maybe it's not like jumping off, flying on the trapeze. You're not quite there, ready to trust the catcher, but what does it look like to trust him to catch you today and where you are? To surrender to him because his heart is for you to fly. He will catch you. So let's pray. And invite the worship team to come on up to stage as well. Jesus, would you reveal in our hearts what, what that is? What does that look like for us to surrender something that we're holding on to that, that we just need to surrender to you? Maybe that area that we just don't quite have enough hope to believe that you could do something. And what does it look like to to offer that surrender to you, not to, to take a step of faith, but not to like muster ourselves to believe something, but to offer ourselves before you that you would implant that seed of faith in our heart, that you would give that gift of, of life from your spirit. To be encouraged from, from the Lord, that even in the midst of that tension in between 
like our, our, our current reality and the desired future, whatever that future is, that, yeah, that, that we might look at our heart, what obstacles might be in there, and that, God, that we would surrender those to you and just see what you might do with that. God, that we might believe the gospel, not just for, like, yes, for salvation and you, but also the gospel for all of our life. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be alive in our hearts to believe that that's the business that you do is that you bring dead things to life. And like, my gosh, my, my heart is feeling dead. So God, God, would you just bring that to life? So Lord, we come before you and we offer you that sacrifice, that surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.